Hey guys, welcome back to episode 64 of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, once again, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. To get instant access to almost 20 hours of world-class online video strength and conditioning information, go to upmentorship.com and help support the show. This episode's guest was Rob Panriello. Rob is a physical therapist and strength and conditioning coach and is also the co-founding partner and chief clinical officer at Professional Physical Therapy, which has multiple locations in New York in the USA. Rob has more than 30 years of experience in the related fields of sports physical therapy, athletic training and performance training of athletes. His experience includes the study of the science of strength and conditioning of weightlifters and the various sports in Bulgaria, the former Soviet Union and former East Germany. Rob has previously held positions of head strength and conditioning coach at St. John's University in New York, the World American Football League and the WSA NY Power Women's Professional Soccer League. He continues to rehabilitate, athletic performance train as well as serve as a consultant to many NFL, NBA, MLB, NHL, collegiate and university teams, coaches and players. On this episode, me and Rob discussed many topics, including Rob's background and influences, problems that Rob sees within both the training and rehabilitation professions, Rob's training and rehabilitation philosophies, Olympic lifting for athletic development, an in-depth discussion on Rob's programming system, which is an absolute must-listen, the biggest things Rob has learned over his career so far, and Rob's advice to all coaches and practitioners listening, and much, much more. This was a really, really great interview, guys, and I really hope you enjoy it. Okay, Mr. Rob Panriello, it's an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you on my podcast. Just for the listeners who might not be too familiar with who you are, just fill us in, Rob. Yes, uh, Robbie, it's a pleasure to be on. I appreciate you having me. Um, my background is I'm a, I'm a physical therapist. I'm a certified athletic trainer. I'm a strength and conditioning coach. Uh, been doing this for over 30 years. I'm uh, presently in private practice with my partners. Our company's name is Professional Physical Therapy. We're here in the States. We're in the uh, tri-state area, mainly New York, New Jersey. Uh, we have 40 physical therapy facilities and a 20,000-square-foot performance center where we train athletes. And my background, my interest has always been combining or bridging the gap between sports rehabilitation and uh, the strength and conditioning of athletes. Um, for this purpose, in regards to your website i'm going to stick mostly with strength and conditioning versus rehab but we can touch on both as far as strength and conditioning uh, my background briefly the highlights of my career are probably uh for 10 years as a strength and conditioning coach at st john's university in new york i was the head strength and conditioning coach uh, also at uh, new york new jersey knights of the world league of american football the wusa new york power which was a women's professional soccer league I uh, spent a number of years with Coach Johnny Parker in the off-seasons working with him in the New York Giants at the NFL and traveled to um, the former USSR, uh, Soviet Union, East Germany, and Bulgaria at the time before the wall, the wall came down. So uh, that's about it in a nutshell, really, my, my background. Mm-hmm. And just just for the the very young the very young listeners, he's talking about the Berlin Wall. Just to get people like, what wall is he on about? Yeah. So uh, no, that's brilliant stuff, Rob. Well, why? Like I, I know you said that you you have this passion for combining strength and conditioning rehab, but when did you know you wanted to go to PT school? Um, well, I went to college 
uh, with a small college in upstate New York called Ithaca College, and I was a phys ed and athletic training major. Mm. And I knew I wanted to be involved in rehabilitation and working with athletes in some way. as also lifting weights and, and playing some sports. And uh, my head trainer was a gentleman who was my, my first mentor named Kent Scriber. He was the head athletic trainer, but he was also a physical therapist. And so he's the one that guided me after I became uh, a certified athletic trainer to continue with my career and uh, also become a physical therapist. So I'm just fortunate enough to have a great mentor when I was in college. Great stuff. Now, I know you just named Ken there and you named Johnny Parker, so obviously these guys are going to be answers to your next to the next question, but the next question I always ask is, who have been your biggest influences on you, both as a coach and therapist, and then also as a person? Oh, God, as a person, I can tell you right now, my father, uh, Mario Panarello, probably the, the, the best man I've ever known. Uh, mm. uh, as far as uh, strength and conditioning, uh, there are so many, but off the top of my head, you know, obviously Coach Parker, uh, Al Vermeil, Don Chu, uh, Al Miller. I mean, I've been associated with these gentlemen for over 30 years. We've been good friends and exchange information. Uh, Derek Hansen, uh, who's up in Canada, was a protege of Charlie Francis, as well as Charlie. It's probably my biggest regret of the time I've spent with Charlie. I wish I'd spent more time with him and, and had asked him a lot more questions. Mm. Uh, at our performance center, one of our coaches is a former Olympic uh, weightlifter who competed and finished 7th and 11th at two Olympic Games. His name is Stan Bailey. He's been an influence upon me. And I have a partner who's a former uh, Olympic weightlifter and former powerlifter and a very good physical therapist, uh, my associate. His name is Tim Stump, and he's been a big influence upon me. As far as medicine, um, I spent a lot of my early years at the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York. So physicians, just, you know, so many to mention. Uh, Dave Olchek, uh, Answorth Allen, uh, Russ Warren, Tom Wickowitz, Scott Rodeo, uh, Riley Williams, Steve O'Brien, uh, Mark Draco, Steve Feely, Bob Mark, so many. I can't name them all. But as far as physical therapists, probably um, guys I've spoken with and been associated with, again, 20, 25, 30 years, Russ Payne, Kevin Wilk. And again, my partner, Tim Stump. So just so many. Uh, wherever I've left out, I apologize, but I could go on forever. Mm -hmm. oh, great stuff. Uh, Rob, what, what would you say, in your opinion, are the biggest problems you see within strength and conditioning? And then, as a follow-up to that, the biggest problems you see in physical therapy? Um, strength and conditioning, I think one of the, one of the biggest problems uh, there's a couple, you know, and this is my opinion. I'm going to tell you I'm right or wrong. I'm just telling you what my experiences mm -hmm. are. There isn't any regulation, right? Like, I, I could, nothing against babysitters, but I could have been a babysitter for 10 years and all of a sudden I want to be a strength coach and I'm going to advertise and market myself and get on the internet and self promote and convince people I'm the greatest strength coach in the world, where for the last 10 years I was a babysitter. Mm -hmm. And there is no regulation. I know the NSCA has their exams and I think that helps, but. There's no regulation. If you look at any other, other profession, you want to be a police officer or a, uh, a, uh, a fireman, a doctor, or, or, or a physician, physician yeah, etc. Yeah, you need to you need to take exams. You need to go through specific trainings to become qualified, and in many of them, you need to be licensed. So, one thing, there's no regulation. Anybody can do it. Yeah. Um, I think another problem with the profession is that um, we're bombarded with a lot of information, and information is good as long as it's valid. I think. 
there's a lot of information out there that's not valid. I mean, if you think of you go to conferences, you can read books, you can read journals, but especially the Internet. The Internet provides you with so much information from individuals who maybe you know, hide behind the curtain of the Internet because they don't reveal their full name or their true name, um, you know, what, what they have accomplished, what their background is, and they just pump out information and, you know, how do you know it's valid or not unless you really investigate it. Mm. So that's another thing. I just think there's so much information out there it could be confusing. Um, I think another problem is people are trying to become multi-factored. So you may have rehab specialists who also want to be strength and conditioning coaches. You may have strength and conditioning coaches who also claim to be rehab specialists. And I'm not saying that can't be achieved because, you know, I'm fairly confident that I've been successful, and I've done both. I've done it over 30 years, and it's not a weekend course that makes you an expert And as you go out and advertise as such for uh, multiple professions. So um, I guess the last thing is, um, one of the last things I think also is, um, I think a lot of people are influenced by opinion versus fact, and that could be a problem. Uh, I think... Uh, I could tell you, you know, you can get stronger by standing on your head, you know, for two hours a day, ten days in a row, and because I'm very well known or very renowned, maybe you can believe that. I think you need to have um, evidence to, as a foundation to the things you do, and, and that's factual. I think there's got to be a difference in what you do. It's got to be based on fact versus an opinion of what someone tells you. Mm. Um, and then lastly, I think it may have calmed down a little bit, but I know that um, over the last few years there's been a, from my perspective, a big uh, thing on correction, and uh, you know, we need to correct a lot of things, quote unquote. Um, I, I believe that we are asymmetrical, and I think that you have to be careful what you correct. I mean, if that's not true, then why are we right-hand dominant or left-hand dominant? Why aren't we equal? And why aren't we trying to make people, you know, uh, apodextrous, make them equal, if, if that's so important? Same thing with the lower extremities. Now, by all means, I'm not saying, you know, there aren't people that need to be quote-unquote corrected. I think my advice is, is that you have to realize that people are asymmetrical and that there are sports and activities that require this asymmetry, such as tennis players or baseball pitchers. They need a greater amount of external rotation in their throwing arm than in their non-throwing arm or their racket arm versus their non-racket arm. And if you make a correction to make these things even, you may not get a, a desired result. So, you know, we have, um, you know, we, we are quad dominant, right? Uh, we, we worry about people being quad dominant, but we're born quad dominant. We have four quad muscles, and if you want to count the VMO, we have five, and we only have three hamstring muscles. So counting the thigh within itself, there is a dominance, but we don't want over-dominance, right? We want to correct proportion. And so there is asymmetry. There are going to be things of dominance. And those things may make the athlete, uh, is what makes the athlete successful. So again, I'm repeating, it doesn't mean that people do not need to be corrected. I would just say I'd be careful in what you correct, and I would not get on the, you know, uh, we're going to correct everything bandwagon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I suppose what, what, what a kind of a phrase to sum that up would be, you know, what we're looking for is just proportional symmetry or acceptable asymmetry what, what we don't sure. want what, what you don't want is like gross asymmetry like where you, you can stand on one leg and you can't even stand on the other one exactly you just want correct proportion yeah. right yeah. Uh, and so it's exactly what you've said 
Uh, and then with regards to uh, now, I know I know you said that you're gonna probably stick more to strength condition, but like on this podcast, we talk about rehab too. So feel free to talk about rehab. But what what would you say are the biggest problems you see then on the rehab and the, the continuum? Um, I, I I don't know. Uh, I think one of the things is is that um, a lot of the young therapists I've worked with, you know, it's just a factor of experience. I'm not saying it's uh, it's necessarily a bad thing. Mm. I think that people start to, uh, as they add exercises and they progress their patients, um, I don't think they take away from the back end, like the simpler things, and I think sometimes the patients wind up overtraining a little bit, if you want to use that term, and uh, I don't think more is better in, in, either, in either aspect, whether you're training an athlete or you're doing rehabilitation. Um, I haven't seen too much in rehab. I mean, uh, I think that, that some therapists I've worked with need to put their hands on the patients more than they have. Um, you know, how do you know what, what the pathology is? How do you know what's going on with the patient, their improvements, their deficits, unless you, unless you actually put your hands on them and, and do joint mobilizations or do your soft tissue work or the things you need to do. Mm-hmm. But generally, you know, there is, like I said, there is regulation, there is, um, uh, you know, a lot of things that are different in a medical profession. And in all professions, you know, whether you're a plumber or a mailman or a physical therapist or a strength coach or anything, you know, there's the top 10%, there's the bottom 10%, everybody else falls in between. So you're going to have your better population in each profession. So, but overall, I just think that um, some of the younger therapists I worked with, they, uh, they try to include everything, as I stated before, and I think they need to do a little bit more hands-on stuff. Uh, from, I, I was interviewing a, a, a guy called Dr. Quinn uh, Hennock yesterday. He's, a, uh, he's only 28 now, but he's recently just finished his, his uh, doctorate in physical therapy, he's, and he's out in practice last year and a half. And I was just saying to him that we were just discussing like this in the podcast. So I was saying that I think the biggest problem I see with uh, kind of, and not just physical therapists, most therapists, is that they just they have no baseline system to measure things against. Like they just seem to give like, just like random corrective exercises with no sort of uh, objective baseline to measure them off to see if what they're doing yeah. is actually working. That would be the biggest thing I see. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I think there, there is information out there that that is considered baseline information. There is a lot of, um, there's a lot of things out there that, you know, just like coaching, you know, a lot of these professions, there's an art, there's a scientific yeah, basis, yeah. and then there's the art of, the application of your profession. Um, I think there is there is some baseline, but but I agree with that as well. Um, yeah, he does point that there are sometimes there are there's not good standards to which to return people back, um, you know, to a level of performance. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we use various things, you know, ourselves, but um, I agree with that. Yeah, just like a, a standard operating system, essentially. But it, but again, it's kind of like as you said, or as you were saying around, is that like top ten percent? And generally, when you see the top ten percent, they're kind of they kind of intuitively intuitively have this sort of system in their mind that they're kind of measuring things against. So usually, uh-huh. the top ten percent already have that in their arsenal. Uh, Rob, if, if I was to say to you, uh, what would be your philosophy with re- regards to rehab? Was that, and I'm going to ask you training too. So just with rehab, what is your philosophy? So when a patient comes in, like what is the kind of systematic process you go through? 
Well, you, know, you, you obviously have to do an evaluation, and you have to be familiar with the pathology of the surgery, and so this way uh, you know you have to know your joint biomechanics and, and as such so that you don't know, disrupt the surgery, right? I think in your basic premise is, you know, you're going to get rid of pain, you're going to get rid of the edema, you're going to restore motion, and you're gradually going to progress the patient through a continuum of, you know, restoring strength. If it's the shoulder, you know, you're going to go scapula strength before you do the cuff. There's going to be strength, there's going to be power, there's going to be neuromuscular timing. They can going to progress to the type of activities that you need to do to restore them to whatever it is they're going back to, whether they're a thrower or a runner or a jumper, et cetera. I don't like, I personally don't like to use the word functional. I think that's a term that's overused, and I quite, quite honestly, I'm not sure what functional is. Um, but, you know, just as a basic premise, those, those types of things, you know, you're going to address those things in the way it's appropriate to that individual. Yeah, very, very good. And then with regards to training, what, what would be your training philosophy? So let's say now an athlete is coming to you, what, what is the systematic process there? Yeah, I think um, regarding athletes, uh, and even in rehab, you know, because we're rehabbing athletes, we have to go through this process. Um, in my opinion, the, the greatest athletes in the world that I've been, the philosophy that I've been taught to, I've been taught by my mentors, is that the greatest athletes in the world apply the greatest amount of force into the ground surface area in the shortest period of time. Mm -hmm. That's true in throwing velocity, that's true in running velocity, that's true in jumping heights, etc. And so Albert Meal uh, has a, something called his hierarchy of athletic development. And so when I explain our philosophy, it's probably the easiest way to explain it. If you look at his hierarchy, you know, he looks at an evaluation process, and then you have to prepare the athlete for training. I think that's ignored or overlooked very often. I think oftentimes people are just presented into the training program regardless of their physical stature, their physical conditioning, their training experience, etc. And they're not prepared to take on the volumes and the intensities that are prescribed in the program. They have to be prepared. And I think that's something that's missing very often. Once they're prepared, then you're going to go through the physical qualities that are necessary for athletic development. And you're going to start with strength, which is the cornerstone and the foundation, because all the, all the other physical qualities evolve from strength. And then your other physical qualities will be explosive strength to elastic strength and then eventually speeding, uh, speed. Um, I like to use a lot of, I use single leg work, I do, especially where appropriate, but I like to use a lot of bilateral bilateral leg work. Mm -hmm. um, I think that you can have increased loads with the bilateral leg work, and I think what's very important is that you can lift loads at higher velocities in a bilateral position. When you speak to your athletes and the coaches and you watch them, they'll say, assume an athletic position. Most activities start and begin begin and end on two feet, and athletic positions are assumed on two feet. Um, when athletes cut, they generally don't cut off one leg. They'll cut off, they'll do a double leg cut. Watch running backs in the NFL. They'll do that. And so I like to do that. I think it's, I'm a big proponent of squatting. I'm a big proponent of the Olympic lifts. I think that most athletic activities, if you look in the literature, they occur at 200 milliseconds or less. Or less. And if you look at the Olympic lifts, and especially associated exercises like poles, especially like 
mid-thigh pulls or pulls from the hips. Those uh, exercises take 150 milliseconds or less, and that's less time than it takes you to perform a vertical jump or a counter movement jump. And so we use these types of jumps as tests of power. So you know these exercises performed at such high velocities have a correlation to the amount of time we have to react and move in sport. And so that's why I like to use them. So basically, you know, those are the types of things I believe in. Those are the types of things we do. With uh, with Coach Ramil's hierarchy, that, that that essentially is very similar to my own uh, coaching sort of philosophy. I, I have a hierarchy that I adapted from Al. It's it's very very similar with just one or two kind of adaptations to it. Um, do do you, with with that hierarchy that Al has, do you have like an objective testing marker for each one of those qualities? I mean, are you testing max strength? Are you looking at explosive strength through? A vertical jump profile or an Olympic lift variation? Are you looking at elastic reactive through a reactive strength index? Are you looking at speed through a 40, 40 yard dash? Do you go through that? Yeah. Pro- do you go through all that profiling to know where, to know? Yeah, where well, needs? we'll do that. I mean, I'll, we'll look at the individual, right? Like if I, if you were training a fencer, right? Mm-hmm. Do they need to really squat five hundred pounds? Of course. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Right. I'm joking. If, if, if you're working with an offensive lineman in football, <laughs> maybe they do. Yeah, you know, yeah. so you have to look at the individual and the needs of the individual first That's, of all. Absolutely. Yeah. I think there is a point of diminished returns. You know, unless your athlete is an Olympic weightlifter, or unless your athlete is actually a powerlifter competing in those sports, then I think there's a diminished return at the point of getting them stronger and stronger. I think that once the athlete is at in the squat, once they're at two times their body weight, I think that's proficient enough. I think that's enough weight, and now they have to lift the weight at higher velocities. Yeah, so I yeah. can tell you a story. Um, one year, we were at Giant Stadium, and we were working with a, uh, a Soviet coach. We had spent about four or five years with Coach Parker and myself. His mm-hmm. name was Gregorio Goldstein. And there was a running back there, gentleman, and a kick returner by the name of Dave, Dave Meggett. And uh, Dave was about 178 pounds, and he was in the weight room when he was squatting, and Goldstein was watching him squat, and he squatted about 425, 425 pounds. And we looked at Coach Goldstein, and we said, you know, how do we get him stronger? And he said, you don't need to get him stronger. He's got to lift the weight faster. And it was kind of like an aha moment. So it gets to be a point in time your athletes are strong enough, then you want that barbell to look like butterfly wings, right? Now you want them to, to, to uh, ascend at such velocities that the bar rocks with these heavy loads. So with Olympic lifts, yeah, I mean, we like to get them uh, you know, uh, cleaning, so good amount of weight, snatching about 80%. Their clean should be about 80% of their squat. Their snatch should be about 80% of their clean if mm-hmm. we can get them there. But, you know, you might have a, uh, a baseball pitcher. Does he need to snatch A? And if he does need to snatch, does he need to snatch 80% of his clean? I don't think so. Um, you know, we like to have them overhead press, uh, those types of things. As far as vertical jump, yeah, we'll, we'll look at them and we want to look at their vertical jump. Some guys can jump high, some can't. We look at it as a proponent of what is their what is their uh, what's their improvement. You know, um, as far as forty yard dash times or running times, yeah, you look at forty yard dash times and the standards of those sports. And that's that's the thing I think that's important in rehab as well. Yeah, you know, yeah. we'll look at we'll look at right leg versus left leg to go back what you said before about the gentleman you interviewed yesterday. One thing I don't think that's looked at, and maybe I'm wrong, but in my conversations with my peers, it's not usually mentioned, is that there is a standard of sport. So 
So, for instance, let's talk about football. Um, there was a study published by um, Andrew Fry and Bill Kramer a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And they looked at college division one, two, and three football athletes. And, and they looked at different positions and the levels. And obviously, if you looked at they looked at the squat, the power clean, and the bench press. And if you looked at their results, the Division One players were stronger and more powerful than the Division Two, and the Division Two players were stronger and more powerful than the Division Three, and that makes sense based on the level of competition. When you looked at the mean, you added all these these three levels together, and you looked at the averages. What was the average squat? What was the average power clean? What was the average bench press? Well, if you looked at the average squat, it was uh, almost 400 pounds. Mm-hmm. And so I can't just look at right leg versus left leg differences, right? Is, is my surgical leg 90% that of the right leg? I also have to look at what is the athlete's ability based on the standard of sport? Because if my athlete can only squat 200 pounds and the competition for his position, who he's going to make contact with, is squatting 400 pounds, I've got a problem. So it's not just comparing the athlete to themselves. It's not just looking at the right-left differences or how far they can jump or how high they can jump. It's how high they can jump. It's how fast are they, how strong are they, how how powerful are they in regards to the standard of their sport and the competition they're going to be playing against. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a factor that a lot of people don't look at. I think they just keep looking at right-left differences or what the test should be. Just with what you said there, the clean being 80% of your squat, I take that's your back squat, is it? Is that off the back yeah, squat? Yeah, your front squat should be about 80% of your back squat. Okay, that's it, perfect. I mean, at a maximum, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Again, the fencer or uh, the billiards player, or, you know, they may not need to have that much strength. It's a factor of, you know, the need of the athlete. Yeah. Rob, I know you. Nothing against fencers or billiard players. You yeah, know, I'm not yeah. Anybody. yeah, exactly. At the, well, sure. At the end of the day, it's about if your sport result is improving. So, the squat, yeah. the squat is secondary then. But I, yeah, I think everyone gets what you're saying. Um, I know you're a huge proponent of Olympic lifting with your time in you know uh, USSR and, and Bulgaria and East Germany. Um, do, do you feel that it is absolutely necessary for for uh, sport athletes to Olympic lift. I mean, is it is it always going to be one of your primary cornerstones, or is there ever an occasion uh, that you don't Olympic lift someone? I would not Olympic lift someone in the in the case where they've gone through rehab and based on let's say multiple pathologies, it wasn't appropriate for them, right? For that individual, that is a very rare instance. I think there's always something someone can do. So. Let's just say, technically, um, someone's not a proficient instructor in the Olympic lifts. Well, you can teach pulls, mm-hmm. right? If they can't catch because they have uh, hand surgery or they have a, had a wrist surgery and it's not appropriate for them to catch, they can pull. They can do variations of the Olympic lifts, which will carry over for rate of force production, forward into the ground, power output. The other thing about the Olympic lifts, is that when you go from the first pole to the second pole, you get a stretch shortening cycle that is, you know, that is 
uh, you know, same as when you do a plyometric tech, uh, activity, right? Yeah, you're going, yeah. you, you, when you do that double knee bend, you're getting a stretch reflex. Mm -hmm. And then you're also getting, if you do have the athlete catch, you're getting a deceleration of the bar, which is important for sport as well. You make your catch, you stand up, and then either you're done or you jerk it or you press it or whatever your exercise calls for. I just think there are so many things that the, the Olympic lifts provide for you besides just power, you know, uh, it's just, it's strength, it's power, it's rate of force production, it's force into the ground, it's things I spoke to you about before, you know, it's the, the greatest athletes put the greatest amount of force into the ground in the shortest period of time. You can pull a lot more weight than you can Olympic lift, right? So that's greater force into the ground in shorter periods of time, specific to sport. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, those are, those are a number of reasons why I like the Olympic lifts. Do I know other people may not be proponent of the Olympic lifts, so if you're not, then maybe you can pull. Yeah, yeah. Do, do, you, do you feel that non-Olympic lifting inhibits an athlete's ability to be as explosive as possible? No, I don't. I think there are other things you can do. Um, you know, uh, my good friend Derek Hansen, you know, who's a, who does a lot of sprinting and was a sprint coach, I, I don't recall the woman's name, but there was a world-class sprinter from the Eastern Bloc that like did uh, 500 to 1,000 plyometric jumps a day yeah. and never really lifted a lot of weight. And her body was able to tolerate that. Now, she didn't do that seven days a week. Don't get me wrong. Oh, I know. But yeah. during, her, during the days of her training, she would do up to 1,000 jumps a day of various type jumps. And that's what kept her power and her elastic abilities for sprinting. Yeah. So I think there are things you can do, but I like to use... Um, the Olympic lifts for a number of reasons that I mentioned, and also it's a total body exercise. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you've got a lot of muscles working at the same time versus just isolating the lower legs. You know, the emphasis is on the lower legs alone with a, um, a jump or other things, which are important to do, don't get me wrong. But if I'm holding a barbell, I've got my legs, my hips, my back, my shoulders, everything's involved and everything has to contribute to an explosive, reactive movement. Yeah, I wonder what uh, I wonder what that female's drug protocol was as well <laughs> to recover from all that. But uh, no, listen, I I'm, I love Olympic lifts as well. It's just you know I, I always like to fish out questions and suppose maybe play the devil's advocate too. But um, there, there's a very interesting. Hey, go, go ahead. Well, I mean, there, very, there have been very successful coaches that have not used the Olympic lifts. Oh. I'm just telling you, you know, I'm just explaining to you what my beliefs are and what I do. Oh, so, absolutely, yeah. I, I'm currently. Uh, well, I'm half reading Dr. Pat O'Shea's book because I'm reading another book at the moment, but I started Pat O'Shea's Quantum Fitness and he's definitely a big proponent of the Olympic lift, so uh, that's, that's a very good book. But uh, it, it's interesting too you bring up Derek because Charlie, uh, I remember watching some of Charlie's material before, and he was, now this was with regards to Ben Johnson and sprinters, but you know, a lot of sprinters, a lot of sprinters would use Olympic lifts, but he, Charlie had this idea that you know, the more advanced or more top level the athlete gets, the actual less you want to use specific exercise in their general training because it tapped too much into their CNS, which was a very interesting concept from Charlie. And it's something, yeah. it's something that Derek brought up in the in the recent book that got released by David Joyce last year, the High Performance Training Book. So uh, right. it, it was just an, an interesting an interesting um, thing to bring up. But I suppose most of the athletes who are training sport you know, who play sports, they're never really re reaching that level of output capabilities of world-class sprinters, so we might need to worry about things like that. Right, but that goes back to diminished returns, right? Yeah, like exactly. how much do you need to do before you start to negatively affect performance. However, based on the fact 
that Charlie trains his athletes in Canada, if you spoke to Charlie or you spoke to Derek, he would tell you in the very cold winter months when his athletes couldn't sprint as often as he would have liked them to do as they would in the warm summer months, yeah. they limp and lifted a lot or yeah. a lot more than they did during the warmer months because he wanted to keep the nervous system stimulated. Yeah, yeah. So again, what, what is the conditions of your environment? Yeah. What is the need of your athlete? And, and, and that's when you'll decide what it is that's appropriate to do and what's not appropriate to do. Yeah. So he Olympic lifted a lot more probably in the cold weather than he did in the warm weather. Yeah, like it's really interesting. Again, you're kind of saying like, you know, exactly as you said, it depends on the conditions that you're currently in. And it's all just about perspective, I suppose, when you're talking about programming. Uh, and speaking about programming, um, literally t today I, I just went back to a sports rehab expert and went back through the the, the files of an interview you done five years ago I can't believe it's five years ago since you did this interview but it, it, with Joe and you spoke about the, the Russian system you learned from from the coach the Russian coach you and Johnny yeah. studied under and uh, some of the notes That's I had yep. yeah some of the notes I had were you know you were talking about you know uh, if you were going 1,000 reps a month it was 22% week 1 28 week 2 35 week 3 15 on week 4 for the deload and it was the same for the days and then you know depending on if it was strength or speed can you just maybe for the listeners touch into that if that's okay Rob yeah sure um, let, let me say this okay I, I, I believe that although and this is this is what I jump around sometime Robbie so I apologize for that no problem this is what the beauty this is what the beauty of this system is is that it controls your volume yeah and I'm a big believer that although volume and intensity are interrelated obviously is excessive volume causing excessive fatigue, which changes mechanics, force output, etc., that causes injuries in the weight room mm -hmm. or injuries on the field when you're practicing. Because think about somebody trying to create, trying to lift and, and make, uh, set a personal best or a world record. Right? They go in, they warm up a little bit. They may do, you know, a set of three, a set a couple sets of two, a set of one, and then they go for their their record, right? Mm -hmm. and they either make the lift or they miss the lift. But more often than not, by far, they don't get hurt. And more often than not, by far, when they walk off the platform or they walk away from the bench, whatever, they're not tired. There's not excessive volume when they're trying to make this attempt to lift this heavy load. So... I think that it's volume that's the culprit that causes injury, excessive volume, all right? Because obviously we need to do enough work to make have enhancement and adaptation. So you have to determine how much volume of your total exercises you want to do in a month. And based on certain volumes, week one you would do 22% of that total volume for the month. Week two, you do 28. Week two, you do 35. Week three, you want to, well, week four, you want to load and do uh, 15%. And if you lift four days a week, then you use those same percentages. You know, your heavy day may be 35%, then follow that day with a 22%, go back to 28, and then down to 15. So you have this waveform, okay? Same thing with your weeks. But the point is, is that if you intended to do X amount of reps in a month, this system is a checks and balances system to show that when you look at your program or review it, you actually did that versus ad-libbing, we'll do three sets of 10 here, two sets of five here, etc. 
I'll give you an example. About a year and a half ago, Johnny Parker and I went to a Division I college to work with their football team in regards to teaching them this system of program design. This school was a, is a very successful school in regards to football. They're always top ten, and they're always in a bowl game. Okay? And so we asked them day one, list the most important exercises from most important to least important on a blackboard, and you know, they got together and they listed them. And I forget who, which was number one and which was number two. But number one, let's say, was the squat, and number two were the Olympic lifts. All right? And what we found was two things from this. When you reviewed their program, for those two exercises, categories, 10% of their total program was in squatting, and 12% was in the Olympic lifts. Mm. So though they thought they were doing a lot of work with these exercises that they felt was the foundation of their program, they actually weren't. And part of the problem was, when we go back to the beginning, that they wanted to incorporate so much of what they learned, whether it was on the internet, conferences, docs, that they had so many exercises in their program that the most important exercises didn't get enough volume of work to make a difference. So when you have a program design or a program system like this, you can check, hey, I wanted to do 20% of my total work in squatting. Well, when you count up all the reps, you'll see if you did 20% of your work in squatting. And how many in your days, how many squat reps, et cetera. So that was the beauty of the system. And that's I've never seen another system like this one. Um, took us a long time to learn it and you know, it's a system we use and so as the as the volume goes up, those percentages change. Uh, if you go three days a week, those percentages change. If you go five days a week, those percentages change. So that's just basically you know, that's a basic overview of um, of the volume system. Now, as far as the intensity, you have zones of intensity. Yeah. You know, you have a 50 to 60 percent, 60 to 70, 70 to 80, 80 to 90, and 90 to 100. So you have zones one, two, three, four, five, and you have to look at what does each zone correlate to in regards to a lift. Is it a warm up? Is it for power? Is it for strength? And then you may say, I want this many reps in zone three. Well, when you count your reps, you'll see that, yes, I do or don't have that many reps in zone three. It takes a long time to write the program, but it's the best program you'll write as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. The other thing about, I'll just so I could leave you with this, the other thing about um, what I learned from this gentleman so much, but one thing I think that is missed is that when you look at the Olympic lifts, or especially squatting, we don't look at, often, when I look at programs or talk to people, we don't look at the size of the athlete. And I think that's important, and it's very important for recovery. And yeah. I'll tell you what, I'll give you an example. So if you look at absolute strength versus relative strength, I have a 200-pound athlete that can squat 400 pounds, and I have a 300-pound athlete that can squat uh, 550, right? So absolutely, the absolute strength of the big guy is much greater than the, rel- than the absolute strength of the little guy. But pound to pound, the little guy's stronger, right? Because he's lifting twice his body weight where the big guy's lifting maybe one and three quarters his body weight. But here's the problem. When the 400 pound, when a 200 pound athlete back squats 400 pounds, they're lifting a total of 600 pounds, right? Because you can't ignore that body weight. Yeah. When the 300 pound guy is lifting 550, 
he's lifting 850 pounds. So it's going to take him longer to recover. So these, so those guys can't have the same exact program. They can with regard to volume, but their intensities have to change. So we use 110 kilos. If you weigh more than 110 kilos, then 50% of your work is going to be in zones three and four. If you weigh, I'm sorry, if you weigh more than 50, I, I didn't know what I just said, I apologize. If you weigh more than 110 kilos, 50% of your work is going to be in zones two and three because your absolute loads are going to be higher and you need to recover. But by, 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 by zones two and three, is that what, 70, 80, 80 to 90, is it or? It's 60 to 80. Okay, okay. All right, but if you weigh less than 110 kilos, maybe 50% of your work is in zones three and four, which mm -hmm. would be 70 to 90. Yeah, yeah. Now here's the other advantage of lifting in the lower zones besides recovery. When you're a big guy, if you're an offensive lineman, or you're a defensive lineman, you need to maintain your mass. And so with lower loads, you can perform higher repetitions per set. Yeah. And what do higher repetitions emphasize? Yeah, hypertrophy. hypertrophy, right? Mm -hmm. So the lower zones, even though you're lifting less weight, you're maintaining your mass, and you're not lifting such heavy weight with the same repetitions as the lighter guys that you can't recover. Yeah. And so body weight plays a role in exercises like squatting, in my opinion, mm -hmm. and, and where your volume of your total program of intensity is going to lie. Because yeah. big guys can't do the exact same weight percentages as the little guys. They will not be able to recover because their absolute loads are so much heavier, meaning the weight on the barbell plus their body weight. Yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It's uh, another thing that it just in my mind that I see no coaches take. Well, not, I've never really seen anyone take it into consideration. You you talk about big athletes in terms of body weight, but uh, the height of an athlete too, like a taller athlete. Like, Absolutely. Like surely the, that has to be taken into consideration too. Uh, the reason why I bring that up is because you know I've conversed a lot with Al Vermeil before. Like I've spoken to Al four or five times through Skype oh. and interviewed him. And, he he sent me. He always sends me so many. He's so generous. He's like he all sends me like all of his material. Like, um, and I keep on to him about writing a book. And he's like, oh, nobody read it. And I was like, just write a book, goddammit. Uh, but um, he sent me something, and it was about you know the, the his chart that he adapted from uh, Prolipin, and and in the last slide he was like talking about you know Horace Grant and tall athletes, and that needs to be taken into consideration. Sure. And I was like, you know, that makes so much sense. You know, that tall people need to. You can't obviously treat someone who's six foot six the same as a five foot nine guy when it comes to their squat volumes. Sure, absolutely, and yeah. you know, and taller athletes may be able to. Um, you may have to go from the floor with heavier loads and put heavier loads on their back, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. sometimes they can assume those positions a little bit easier, depending upon the athlete. There's a good friend of mine. His name is Brendan Ziegler. He used to be uh, the strength and conditioning coach for basketball at Oregon State. And uh, now he's at um, Cal State Bakerfield, and Brendan has, you know, he's, he's got his seven footers cleaning um, 120 kilos, 130 kilos from the floor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, so it, it can be done, and you can get heavy weights on these guys' backs as well. So it's a, it's a factor of, you know, coaching proficiency as well as the abilities of the athlete. And that's what I mean before. I said how much... You know, how much strength is enough, how much weight is enough, etc. You know, you have to look at your athlete and you have to determine that. In terms of the 
total volumes per per uh, per month per training block. Now I know it's going to depend obviously on the individual, like a high school athlete versus a college versus professional, and also, right. and also time of year in terms of preseason, in season, uh, etc. Sure. Uh, like what 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 would be the highest amount of volumes you'd go like per month or uh, whatever way you want to break it down. It, de- it depends upon how many months you have. So let me give you an example. So now with the collective bargaining ad- agreement with the NFL, you might have anywhere from, you know, give or take seven, eight weeks, maybe an extra week, maybe a shorter week. You don't have the time, they once said, when, when we used to go to Giant Stadium and I used to work with Coach Parker, we had 21 to 22 weeks. Mm-hmm. So we had a number of training blocks. And so I, we started to go higher and higher and higher and we got up to one month, I remember in particular, we got up to 1,800 reps in a month. That's right. And our, our guys were starting to get sore. I just think, the, and that's where I started to learn about volumes just being, you got to watch your volumes because guys are going to get hurt. They really are. And so I think you may start as low as 750 reps. It, it's a factor of how many weeks are you planning for and how many days. It, the reps basically depend upon three things. Robbie, how long is your training period? Is it four weeks? Is it six weeks? You know, what is your block? Because I like to set things up in training blocks. So that's the first thing, right? Obviously, the longer your training block, the more volume you can prescribe. How many days a week are you training? Are you training three days a week? Are you training five days a week? All right? And the last thing is, where are you counting your reps from? If you start counting your reps at 50% of your 1RM versus 70% of your 1RM, if you start counting at higher percentages, then your volume is going to be lower. If you start counting at lower percentages, your volume could be higher as well. So those three factors will determine how, how many reps you're going to have in a month. Yeah. I think you can start as low as 750 reps. I think you can start even at 600 reps, maybe for your high school kids. I would not take anybody past 12 to 1,400 reps. I'd keep it in that 200 rep area for a month. But what I would do is that instead of progressively increasing the volume every month, I may, I've had guys where I, I took them to 1,200 reps in a month, and I kept them at 1,200 reps, but I try to slide the intensity to the right, so to speak. Yeah. So if, if their average lift in an exercise for 1,200 reps in a month was 75% of their 1RM, then maybe the next month, even though I kept them at 1,200, their average lift in that exercise was 77.5%, 79%. So even though the volume of work remained the same, the quality of work became better. And that's what I think is, is, is what's most important, right? What's an appropriate volume? How much strength do they need? Get them a better quality of your program. Get them strong and powerful. You know, get them more strong and get them faster with the same prescribed volume of work over time. I don't think you need to do more work. I think you have to enhance the amount of work they perform. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, no, it definitely does. And uh, just in terms of the, the, so I know in the four-day example you spoke with Joe at that time, you were, you, again, you, you were saying that you know, for 1,000 reps, it was 20, 22, 28, 35, 15 in terms of the percentages over the four weeks. And if it was over 1,000 reps, you were going 22, 27, 32, 19. Just it, that's, yeah. for, that's obviously for four days per week. If you're going with three days per week, how does that, is it just, obviously it's similar-ish, but how... Give, how or, ta- give, give or take, yeah. usually within a couple of percentages, well, even the four days or in a couple of percentage points, I would do 
do something like 44, 22, 34. So now let's say you have a four-week block, and you can do 1,000 reps or less. You'd be, those four weeks would be 22, yeah. 28, yeah. 35, 15, whoever you want to break up your weeks. But those three days would be something like 44, 22, 34. We used to try to do 48, 22, 30, but that 48% day, as your volume got high in the month, is just too much for your athletes. And so again, if you're going three days a week, you may start your high school athlete at 600 reps. If you're going four days a week, maybe you're starting them at 750 reps because you've got that extra day. Yeah, and it just it's interesting because the, just the three day you've outlined there, the kind of 44, 22, 34, it's kind of just, from, now it's, slight, it's not the exact same, but it's kind of remind me of how Cal Dietz kind of does that undulating model of his in triphasic, and he does a slightly different than that. But with regards to, to, to the to the 44, 22, 30, now I, I know you're just giving examples here, like I know these are just general, right. so I, I know, I understand you're probably saying like don't read into these too much, but are, are you keeping intensity high on every day there and just manipulating the volume, or like are you going like high volume, high intensity, uh, high volume, low, or sorry, high volume, low intensity, medium volume, mid intensity, high intensity, low volume. Are you, are you kind of manipulate that way, or is it just you're purely manipulating volume yeah. and intensity? Is all no, I always, want, I always want to have that um, uninvaded waveform. Okay, yeah. so those are my days and my weeks. All right, but you always want to lift the weight, whether it's a lighter load or a heavier load. You want to lift it as fast as possible. Yeah. So velocity, the intensity of your velocity, your effort is always maximal. Right? So heavier loads are going to be um, lifted at slower speeds, and lighter loads are going to be lifted at higher speeds, right, if you give your maximum effort. And that just makes sense. And there was a study, when I was in Russia, they told us about a study. Now, I've never seen it, but they, they told us this, that they looked at a squat, a bunch of elliptic lifters, and looked at their squatting over 10 weeks. And they had guys, they looked at speeds, and they, some guys lifted weights slow, some guys lifted weights fast, and some guys lifted weights some days slow and some days fast, all right, specifically to the squat. And the group that made the greatest gains over 10 weeks, they increased their squat by 22 kilos, was the group that did things in combination. So Coach Parker and I were talking about this and said, what are we going to do? Like, how are we going to set up our speed program? Like, what are we going to tell our guys to lift slow, and how are you going to tell your guys to lift fast? And Johnny just looked at me because, you know, as a brilliant coach as he is, he goes, Rob, aren't we doing that already by, a volume of, by varying our loads? Doesn't that happen naturally? And he's right. So some days we're going to lift, you know, especially you're going to have, look, you're going to have heavier weeks, lighter weeks, heavier days, lighter days. You're going to have unloading days. You're going to have unloading weeks. But by being proficient in your prescription, this is the art of coaching, mm. the heavier loads are going to be lifted at lower velocities, and the lighter loads are going to be lifted at higher velocities as long as your athlete gives you maximum effort. What days you go heavy, what days you go light, part of that is the art, you know, that's a lot of the art of coaching and what you're trying to do with the athlete you're working with. You know, are, they in the, are you preparing them? Is it their first block, their first cycle? Is it a strength phase? Is it a power phase? I know people like specifics, like I want to know X so I can do Y. But that's not the way. You have to be able to evolve and think about what's going on and what's presented in front of you, and that is the art of coaching. You know, so I don't know if I'm giving you what you want or no, no, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, because uh, again, I, I, uh, 
like I'm I'm I didn't want to come across as, as if like Rob tell me the black and white answer because again I know you on on such a medium such as a podcast you can only give generalities and again even even if we got down to the nooks and crannies of this if we were face to face the answer would just be like well it it depends <laughs> it, it depends on the situation and the person you have yeah. I mean, it's just kind of yeah, I mean Trump, that was Charlie Francis's always big answer he could drive you crazy and then you realize what a genius he was if you thought about it you'd say Charlie. What about you know X, Y, and Z? And he'd look at you and go, "Well, that depends." Yeah. And they mean, why can't you just give me an answer? He said, "Well, because we have to have a specific situation." And then I would tell you, you know, what I would do in that situation. So, you know, Charlie would always say, "Often, you know, it depends." But he was right; it does depend. Um, so, again, it's your talent of regarding, you know, when you do your higher volume days. You know, I give you the percentages, uh, but the percentages, you know, are going to be based on a block of a month and what's that block for six weeks and you know what are your zones of intensity for that day I mean we're never going to go past zone three this day or you know it's our third week we've worked for two it's really going to be our heaviest week and that's your philosophy so we're going to get into zones four yeah. you know um, etc so you know it comes down to your coaching abilities and how your athletes are progressing in in terms of the, the total reps like are you taking assistance exercises and everything of that or is it just mainly for the Olympic lift and mainlets or is it every exercise um, I can give you a guideline on the exercises so with a strength exercise let me back up a second again I apologize I'm going to jump around no no it's great it's okay you're going to make your selection of exercises what you think is most important for your athletes whether you're an Olympic guy you're a lifting guy or you're not an Olympic lifting guy whether you're a single leg guy or you're a double leg guy for your squatting what you're going to take your core exercises, what is it that you believe in and what you're going to do. Okay. No more than 25% of your total volume is going to be in one exercise category. So squatting, back squat, so let's just keep the math easy. We're going to do 1,000 reps in a month. So no more than 250 reps in that month, when you add up all the days and all the weeks, are going to be in back squat, front squat, split squat, whatever squat you want to do. Okay? Mm-hmm. And then for a strength exercise, no more than 35 reps, are gonna, plus or minus two or three, are going to be performed in a daily workout. Yeah. In a speed exercise, it's no more than 20 to 25 reps are going to be performed in, in that day's exercise workout. So for your Olympic lifts, because you're doing all these other exercises, you know, in... in um, conjunction that day so with speed we fatigue easier right yeah. I mean, you're going to get a lot tired you're going to get more tired sprinting 100 yards than you're walking 100 yards right so high velocity exercises your prescription are going to be lower volumes strength you're going to have higher volumes you can and obviously just for the factor of fatigue with your nervous system force output etc you're going to do your high velocity exercises first and finish with your lower velocity exercises because you'd be able to tolerate them as far as your technique, etc. cetera, uh, when you're fatigued, your strength stuff versus your speed stuff. So I, I know you were saying with that interview with Joe again, you were like, you usually don't go any more than five exercises, four or five exercises, but... Sp- I don't, and I'll tell you why I got that. Um, in a workout, I think in your plan, if you want to use more than four or five exercises, that's totally appropriate. Right? Like you could, um, with your cleans, right? 
Your categories could be, you could go from the floor, you can go from the knees, you could go from the mid-thighs, you could go from the hips. You can pull instead of cleaning, right? Now those are all variations of your cleans that you're going to perform in those four weeks. But you only have a certain volume of clean category work to do. Which exercises you do or variation of the clean is up to you as a coach depending upon your, your athlete's needs. When I went to Bulgaria, one of the things that struck me was that I went in May into June, the year before the 88 Olympics. And I had wished I had gone a year or two years earlier because when I was there, and I was the head strength coach at St. John's at the time, when I went there, they were you know, a couple of months before the Olympic Games. And so what these guys were doing was, were four exercises. They were doing singles and doubles. They weren't lifting less than 20 kilos from their PR. And they were lifting for one hour three times a day. And I'm like, what am I going to do with this? You know, and as I got into discussions, I learned a lot. But my basketball players or my football players were not going to train by doing singles and doubles with no, no less than 20 kilos of their PR three times a day. What I wanted to know was, how did you get to this point? That would have been more informative for me for training my athletes at a collegiate level. And I, sorry, know, sorry, to, sorry, sorry, sorry to interrupt you, Rob, but I, I think that's the problem when people see the Bulgarian system because they're only seeing the, the end product of it and they think that they can take that and apply it, whereas you just said the perfect thing there. You, you were like, no, I want to see what they did to get to that point. Absolutely. But what I did learn was the reason why they only went for an hour was because testosterone levels in the body for males, and I apologize, I don't know, you know, estrogen or testosterone levels in females, but it, it just stayed with me was that they start to rise in your first 20 minutes of training. Yeah, then they peak from 20 minutes to 50 or 60 minutes, and then you start to decline, mm -hmm. okay? And so they would shut it off at an hour when testosterone levels were, were before they started to decline, let them rest and recover and come back for another hour workout, and let them rest and recover and come back for another hour workout. And where I adapted that was not only because of the number of athletes we had to train. You know, football team, you have over 100 athletes, right? You have all these guys going through the weight room. But again, I believe that it's excessive volume and excessive fatigue that causes injury. You know, guys come in, you know, after eight weeks of training, oh, my knee's sore or my back's sore or whatever. It's just an accumulation of the stress over time that they weren't prepared for. It was just too much work, mm -hmm. along with uh, maybe inappropriate intensity, and that's another story. But if you keep your workouts, I'm not talking about warm-ups, I'm not talking about cool-downs, but generally, give or take, if you keep the core workout in that weight room to an hour, you're going to eliminate a lot of problems. Yeah. And so... I try to do that. I, we are guys in the weight room, and usually the whole workout isn't more than an hour, hour and a half tops. And, you know, that's because I'm trying to fight off the accumulative effect of excessive fatigue. And so Coach Parcells, in conversation with him, as well as conversation with Johnny Parker, we go back to everybody's trying to incorporate everything. You know, this coach says you should do that. And this other coach says you should do this. And this other coach says you should do that. And so you try to do everything, and you wind up in that situation at the Division II school where their most important exercises were squats and Olympic lifts, but they only their volume was only 10, their total workout volume was only 10 and 12%. Yeah. How are they going to get a training effect with such a low volume of, of work in those exercises? Because mm -hmm. they try to incorporate too much. And what Parcells would tell you is, hey, know what's important, 
and don't worry about the rest. Yeah. And so if you stick to your basics and you stick with the exercises that you believe in and your philosophy, you don't need to do a million other things. And you could get your work done, give or take, within an hour, yeah, maybe a little longer, and fight off the effects of excessive work, which will result in excessive fatigue. Yeah. Pareto's law, 80 or, uh, 80% of your results comes from 20% of what you do. So it's, right. yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly, the big rocks. And I, I read that article on, on Breck and Travis's, uh blog recently where, where you, you were saying, you know, talking about your experience with this college that you and Johnny went to, and also, um, I thought it was Al Miller. Was it Al Miller that not said that thing to you of know what's important and throw the rest? I thought it was Al. Maybe I was wrong. Um, but it was it was a really really good article. Thank you. Uh, just in in terms, uh, Robin, I, I sent you an email about this before about you know uh, certain uh, rep volumes in terms of uh, certain percentages that you're lifting at, and I spoke with Al then, and we kind of went back and forward with a kind of a modified version of Prolipin's table and. You kind of always thrown this that you feel that an athlete needs at least nine, at least nine repetitions. I would say to get a train effect of a, of a specific quality, and like I've, I've had this question in my head since. And I just have an email to you, but sure, it's a good time to have it on this so people can hear. Yeah, it. I mean, if you speak to if you speak to Al Miller, you're talking about minimum repetition, the minimum number of repetitions you need to perform in an exercise to get a training effect. Is a that the question? Yeah, but basically a okay. training effect. But uh, just before you go on, it's just because say if you were like taking. If you were taking loads at like ninety two and a half percent, and like you know, say in Perlipin's chart, he's like you know, no more than ten reps over ninety percent. So like, if you were hitting ninety at ninety five percent, like would four singles like like would that not be proficient at that load? Do you think, or do you still think you need at least nine repetitions? Yeah, no. Again, I think you need. I think you need to look at the athlete. I'm going to give you a couple of examples. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Now, if you if you speak to Al Miller, who's also well versed in Goldstein's system. Um, I will tell you and swear that the number is nine. I will tell you and swear that the number is 12. Yeah, okay? Yeah, yeah. And now, if you're going to perform 12 repetitions, those 12 for training effect, that training effect may be enhancement or that training effect may be recovery. Right? So you may only perform on your unloading day 12 reps in an exercise to assist in recovery, to do enough work to help someone recover. Like if you work, if you work out heavy on a Monday, and you do nothing on Tuesday, you will be more sore on Wednesday than if you did a little bit of work on Tuesday. Yeah. That you would be less sore on Wednesday. Okay. So it's the same type of thing. You can use light loads in help in recovery, but you still have to do a proficient amount of work with those loads. So those twelve reps can assist you in recovery. Now, in season, I'm going to jump around on you. In season, what I learned from Coach Parker was that you can make significant gains in season, mm. and you can lift very heavy in season, but your volume has to be low because you're adding practice, gain practice, along with lifting yeah. and running, right, etc. Yeah. So your volumes have to reduce. And you know the story I always tell, and I've written about it was that one year when Coach Parker was with the New England Patriots, they were going into the playoffs, and they made it to the Super Bowl. And unfortunately, in that Super Bowl, they lost to the Green Bay Packers. And if you think, when would you want to peak in strength and speed and power, it would be going into the playoffs, because you could probably, depending who you speak to, you could probably hold a true peak anywhere from three to five weeks, again, depending who you speak to. And over the three to 
want to peak. Going into that playoff series, 35 of Coach Parker's players PR'd in one or more lifts. And so, you know, we started to lift heavy with our players uh, at St. John's and, you know, the other teams I worked with and even the athletes I work with now who are still in this area, we lift heavy in season, but you have to know when to do it and the volume has to stay low. So to go back, my 12 reps, depending on the needs of my athlete, the time of year, off-season, in-season, etc., those 12 reps may be, like you say, it could be in the 90% or building to that 90% with some of those reps very heavy to have an enhancement of strength or power qualities. Or those 12 reps could be used for recovery in my unloading week or my unloading day of the week. And so it depends upon, again, I don't mean to be vague, but it depends upon the need of your athlete and the situation you're in. But I believe the number that I believe I've been taught of repetitions that you need to perform at a minimum in an exercise to exhibit a training effect, whatever training effect that you want to occur, recovery, enhancement, or anything in between, is the number 12. Yeah, yeah. And even at like 90% or above, you'd still want to get 12 total reps in? I don't know if you do 12 reps at 90% or better, because that's a hell of a workout, especially if it's a high-speed lift. But um, it is possible. Yeah, I mean, you know, as long as you have the time for recovery, it is possible. We've done it. I don't do that too often, but yeah, we've yeah. done it. Yeah. No, no, it's just one because I, personally myself, I, I kind of use Perlipin's chart, and I've seen good results of that. But listen, as you said, sure, Al is saying nine, you're saying 12. So it was, again, it depends on the, the environment you're in and at least yep. work with. Um, no, I won't keep you too much longer, Rob. Just uh, you wrote a great you wrote a great article with Derek Hansen uh, regards to ACL and going back to running. Um, can you maybe just just touch on that? You, in that article, you spoke about yeah you you know you started off talking about the the um, phase of running with stance and uh, swing phase, and then you spoke about the importance of the position that you regain your range of motion back into knee flexion. Now, a lot of people always talk about knee extension, but you are also talking about the need to get this uh, flexion back into the knee as well has been very very important in terms of the swing phase through on the leg and also where the graft comes from you you were uh, in your interview with joe you were saying you felt that of a lot of therapists back in the 80s because they were just Hello? can you hear me Roger, that illusion? no i can hear you i can hear you hold on a second Robbie? and we're back on here did you hear my question that time yeah, I heard, I heard you know, the knee extension, knee flexion and running, yep. Yeah, so just uh, you were talking about the need to get that knee flexion back, but you also spoke about where the graft came from um, mm -hmm. in terms of uh, from the patella or the hamstring. And you also said that into Joe Heiler, uh, just to bounce, bounce around here, so I was talking about the article you do with Derek, but in the interview with Joe you did, you were saying that you felt that therapists back in the 80s were doing a lot of damage to the knees with the exercise they were doing because they weren't taking into consideration that, like, a third of the patella is gone essentially so uh, can you maybe just discuss through maybe the, you know bring someone back from an ACL into running yeah, and I, yeah I, I just want I just want to be clear on that um, so uh, one is you know in any knee pathology you're at the, one of the first things you have to achieve is knee extension yeah it's because on heel strike when you're walking your knee has to be straight, straight if right. not you're going to limp, which is going to irritate the knee, which is going to cause pain, edema, and becomes a vicious cycle. 
So knee extension is an imperative at the initial phases of any type of re-knee-hap, okay? What I'm talking about knee flexion is that most physical therapists that I've known and people I've worked with, they achieve passive knee range of motion. They get full knee range of motion passively, meaning bending the knee whether they do it or the patient does it themselves, all right? But when you run, you need active knee range of motion to place the position of the foot or the heel at the gluteal fold so that you have an appropriate swing phase to go into your stance phase. And so you almost want to use the cue, if you'd like, step over your knee. If you don't have enough knee flexion, your foot's going to come down below your knee in the swing phase and you're actually going to break. Yeah. And because running is a cyclical event, if you mess up the swing phase, you've messed up the stance phase and you messed up the whole cycle. So my, important, my emphasis on active range of motion it's not, immediate, it's not immediate that you achieve that immediately like you do the knee extension, but you need to achieve full active range of motion during the rehab process to better prepare the athlete at the time of discharge, whether they go back to training or they go back to competition, so that the strength and conditioning professional has one less thing to, to get rid of, to, you know, to be concerned with. My, my thing about the therapists in the 80s had nothing to do about the graphs or anything or, or, or that. When I used to lecture in the 80s and into the 90s, and this is another thing where I, where I believe that volume is the culprit, and I used to get into some heated arguments in regards to when I present, I'd, I'd literally get attacked, to be honest with you. But again, to go back to what I think some younger therapists do, and it's not it's not that they're bad, it's just that they're not experienced yet. You know, a first-year mechanic is not going to be as good as a 20-year mechanic. It's just a progression of time. You can't buy experience. You have to live it. Is that they would do one exercise, three sets of ten, right? And then they'd add exercises. And then instead of taking exercises away as they advance the patient, they would keep the exercises they started with and keep adding higher and higher exercises, yeah. harder and harder exercise. And then what do they do? They do, they add more weight to the exercises. So if you did 10 exercises, three sets of 10, three days a week, in six months, give or take, your, your rehab patient who, who's not quote-unquote normal, whatever that is, right? Because they're in a deficit. They have a pathology. They would perform, give or take, about 25,000 reps. When I was with Dragomir Karolson, Al Miller, Johnny Parker, and I spent a year with Dragomir Karolson in the 1990s when he was the head coach of the United States weightlifting team, the United States weightlifting team would do 25,000 reps, give or take, in a year. And so what was happening, in my opinion, is that through the rehab process in the 80s, you could keep patients forever. It wasn't like you had to discharge them because of insurance or things that you have now in this millennium. But you kept the patient for a year, and they, would kept, they did such high volume of work that the knees would get irritated. They would get overuse injuries because, in my opinion, of too much work in therapy, not a result of the surgery. And that's where I think I offended people and I would get attacked, but that was my belief. And so, again, to go full circle between working with Coach Goldstein and my experience in the 80s in rehab was that it's not, you've got to do enough work to have adaptation take place. I don't deny that, but it's more the quality of your work versus more and more work. 
I think it's excessive volume, and these experiences have taught me, it's excessive volume that gets you in trouble. And so that's, again, I go back to what the beauty of Goldstein's system was. It teaches you to control the volume and then slide the scale to the right. You don't have to do more work, just increase the quality of your work. Yeah, yeah, big time. That's great stuff. Um, just last two questions then, Rob, that I'm going to ask. Uh, where are I'm just looking at my questions here because I had one that I wanted to ask before we got off. Oh, yeah. In terms of the, the biggest mistakes or things that you've learned over your career, what, what would you say would be your the biggest thing you've learned or the biggest mistakes you've learned? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, obviously early in my career, you know, when I was young, I made the same mistakes that I've described to you. So um, certainly I've made my share, many many mistakes. And, uh, you know, and, and I think I've learned from, from, from all of them, you know, one way or another. But um, I think I made a mistake where I, I try to include everything. You know, you're a young coach, you go out there, a young therapist, you're hearing all these things, and you're trying to include everything you learn in your program. And you wind up with such little volume in so many things instead of a significant amount of work and what really counts. So you know, I was I was I was guilty of that. Um, I think uh, you know I also because of adding everything into these programs when I was younger, I had my guys that would come in on oh, my knee sore today or you know, my shoulder sore today, they didn't have explicit injuries, you know, they didn't tear their rotator cuff or, or blow a disc out in their back, but they would come in sore, and, and again, that just taught me I had to uh, eliminate my volumes. Um, I think in season, early in my career, we didn't lift heavy enough. I think that, um, you know, we got to a point where, well, we've got practice and the weight, so we can't go too heavy, and I think that's wrong. I think you can lift as heavy in season as you can off season, or else why did you do all this work off season? So if you're if you're going to limit your in season work to eighty percent of your one RM because you don't want to stress your guys too much, then essentially you're saying it's okay for your guys to play with a twenty percent deficit from what they were in their off season when they set their PRs or whatever they were. And I don't think that's true. I think they can lift heavy in season. You just have to make sure you control the volume. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I try to get my athletes as strong as possible. And I think there's a point where you get guys, as you get them stronger and stronger, there's diminished returns. There's a point in time where there's, you know, there's enough strength and now focus on getting them faster, whether it's not only running speed, but velocity on the barbell. Get that barbell moving faster. They don't need to be stronger. They need to move faster. And early in my career, because we used the principles of weightlifters and powerlifters, I made the mistake of almost making them weightlifters and powerlifters, right? The stronger and more explosive due to the lifting of heavy, heavier and heavier and heavier weights was better. But unless our athletes are actually weightlifters or powerlifters, we're just using the principles to create a better athleticism and better athletes. And so, you know, that's probably something else I did. So I got those things. I'm sure there's others. Um, been doing this a long time, so I have a correlation with as many mistakes as well. But those types of things early in my career. That's great stuff. In terms of just the rehab, just final question on the rehab, and then I'm just going to ask uh, a question on advice to coaches. But in terms, sure. in terms of uh, rehab and even just recovery from training, um, how big a role do you, uh, or, or how much emphasis do you put on the role of nutrition in terms of coming back from an injury? I think nutrition is very important. Um, I, I can give 
guidelines, but you know what? I've never seen, um, not that I've really looked for a lot, and I admit that to you, I am not a nutritionist. Uh, we've sent people who are athletes to nutritionists. Like I said before, I don't think one person could be a jack of all trades. I think find your specialty, maybe two specialties, and, you know, confine yourself within your what you're very good at. I think, you know, as far as diet, you know, as far as normal diets, if patients are heavy, they've got to lose weight to unload their joints, especially if it's lower extremities. I know there are doctors that won't do surgery on people's lower extremities unless patients lose weight. Mm-hmm. I think they've got to stop smoking. I don't think enough people speak about athletes and smoking. There's a uh, restriction in blood flow with smokers, and it's just as it occurs not only in recovery, but in the healing process of rehab. And then obviously, I think they do have to eat right for restoration and, you know, building of muscle and et cetera. So I think it's very important. Do I give them diets in regards to my patients here? I want you to follow this diet. Diet? No, I don't. Admittedly, I don't. Mm-hmm. But we'll discuss things, whether they bring it up or I think I need to bring it up in regards to the way they present. Yeah, no, great stuff, great stuff. And then finally, just advice to, I used to always say advice to younger coaches, but like, I mean, there's all types of coaches and people listen to this, people who are like much older than myself. And so like, I've changed the question to just, what is your advice to anyone listening to this? So what would your advice be to all coaches and therapists listening to this? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you need to become proficient in your area of specialization before you try to overlap. You know, it doesn't mean you don't learn from people of other professions, I'm not saying that at all, but become a good physical therapist before you really try to become a good strength coach. And become a really good strength coach before you try to get into the aspect of assisting, you know, the rehab. doesn't mean you can't start the process, but become proficient and an expert in, in the field that you want to practice in. And then look at other, look at becoming proficient in other fields, that's one. Um, I think, like, using examples of strength and conditioning coach, I think once your weight room is set up, I think you've got to establish your knowledge library. Um, there was a, um, a resident and a good friend of mine. His name is T. Mormon. He's the head of orthopedics at Duke University in North Carolina. And I asked T. once, I said, how do you become a great orthopedic surgeon? Because T. is outstanding. He's one of the best in the country. And he said, you need to get a callus on your butt in the library, just like you need to get a callus on your hands with your surgical tools. And it, and it hit me, you know, that was early in my career. And so I think we have strength and conditioning coaches, you need to get calluses on your hands from the barbell, but you need to get a callus on your butt from studying, whether it's conferences, reading, etc. So once your weight room or your physical therapy facility is well equipped with the type of equipment you need to work with your patients or your athletes, then you've got to focus on developing your library. Your library can exist just between your ears or books and videotapes on the shelf and everything in between, but you need to expand your knowledge library. Um, I would visit the professionals who are not necessarily uh, the most well-known, although some of them, often a lot of them are very successful, but visit the professionals that you have found out are very successful to get their results. Find out what they're doing. Most people will share their information with you, so make the effort to go visit them. And then uh, lastly, I think, you know, going back to, you know, fact and opinion, I think whatever you do has to have a scientific basis behind it. You know, plyometrics, you know, there's a stretch shortening cycle, etc. Whatever exercises you want to use, fine. 
you know, you know, the Wong's laws and, and so many other things, but you need to have science behind what you do. Now, saying that, I realize coaching and therapy and other professions, there's an art to it. It's the combination of the art with the science that makes the great professional. But if you don't understand the principles of why something works, how do you know which athlete or which patient to apply those principles to? And if you don't know why they work or how they work, how are you going to progress them? All right? So just because someone uses a particular technique or exercise doesn't mean you should use it. You should know why it works before you use it. So again, I think everything you do should be based on science, though I admit and, and I agree that there's an art to everything we do as well. So that, I guess you know, that would be my advice. What would be your top resources for, for the people listening, just in terms of, of books, DVDs, uh, seminars, workshops? Um, obviously, you just said find a mentor. You know, I, find a mentor I, I've, well. been, I've been to a lot of conferences. I've, I've spoken to a lot of people. And, and Robbie, you will, you will find, and, and I, I think you've been doing this about 10 years, give or take. Am I correct? Uh, eight, eight to nine years, yeah. Okay, so let's just say 10 years, give or take. You will find... When you're in, in my point of view, in my position at 30 plus years, the world's a lot smaller than it was at 10. In regards to the people you know, the people you've met, etc. just like I'm sure your world of the people you've made affiliations and friendships with is a lot you know, smaller now in regards to the world has become smaller. You're a lot more knowledgeable. You know a lot more people than it was when you just started. It was this big world of information. How much, you know, how much do I need to know? And I'm not saying that you don't need to continue to learn, because you do. And when you think you know it all, that's when you're going to be in trouble. Mm. But, um, you know, my point is, I go to the people, like with strength and conditioning, my resources, admittedly, are the people I named previously, because those are the guys with the rings. Yeah. And there are other guys I speak to, you know, Sal Alosi at UCLA, um, the guys at Baylor University, Chris Ruff and Kaz and those guys. A uh, guy at Ball State, uh, Dave Feely, is very good. I go to the guys that, you know, hey, what are you doing here? There's others I go to well, as well. You know, just if I don't name people, please don't be insulted. There's just so many of them. But I go to the guys that have been successful. It's not so much that I go to more conferences or buy more books, though I do read and though I do attend the conferences that I speak at. But I go specifically to the people who are successful. It's kind of, to me, it's a difference of being tutored one-on-one versus sitting in a classroom with 30 other people and one instructor. I think you get a lot more of the one-on-one, and that's what I'm saying before. Find out who's been successful and go and spend time with them. Go spend time with an Al Vermeil. Go spend time with a Johnny Parker. Go spend time with a Don Chu. Go spend time with you know a number of people who have been successful throughout the country. Brendan Ziegler in California, depending what kind of what part of the country you're from. Um, you know, and... and They'll give you the time, you know, Derek Hansen up in Vancouver. They'll spend the time with you. You'll have to work it out and arrange it. But you'll get a lot more spending a day in the weight room or on the track with those guys than you will sitting with 100 other people in a room at a conference. And, and you know, that's what I say now. It's what I, that's what I do now. I go to the people, whether it's a surgeon, I go in the ORs with them, whether it's a therapist, I go in the clinic with them, and whether it's a strength coach, you know, I go in their weight room or their facility with them. That's what I do now. Specifically. Great advice, uh, Rob Panarello. Thanks, and thank you so much for making time today to come on to my podcast. I really appreciate it. I mean, it's it's only been in the works for about 
three years <laughs> we, yeah. we, 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 fight, we finally made it happen where can people find out more about you Rob or if they wanted to contact you what would be the best well, way like, I mean I don't have my own website or anything like that um, they can contact me my email is rpanarello p-a-n-a-r-i-e l-l-o at professional p as in peter t as in thomas professional pt.com it may take me uh, a day or so to get back to you because I'm fairly busy, but doesn't mean I'm ignoring you. Just be patient with me. But someone emails me, you know, I will email, I will email them back. And uh, I just want to say, Robbie, I, re- I know it's been about three years in the working. Um, I very much appreciate you know you having me on. I really consider it an honor. I think you do great work. I think your website's a great website. And uh, keep up the good work. And if I could ever help you or assist you anything else in the future, please don't hesitate oh, to that's, call. Uh, You're a good guy. Yeah, thanks a million. I, I truly appreciate that. Just stay stay on the line just for literally thirty more seconds while I just wrap up the the podcast. So guys, what a absolutely you know tremendous interview. Just again, probably up there one of my favorites. An absolute gentleman. Uh, Rob Panariello and just so much knowledge so I hope you guys really enjoyed it make sure you check out the show sponsor upmentorship.com that really helps to keep the show going and also if you can leave a review on iTunes so it bumps us up but to everyone listening thanks for listening take care I'll talk to you soon and stay strong (laughs) 